Hi, it's Hal Anderson on the podcast today. Kate Hartfield, author of Armed in My Fashion. Also the mayor of Thompson, Dennis Fenske, on Greyhound Canada's decision to pull out of Western Canada. And Damian Turner, a retired Winnipeg Police Service collision reconstruction specialist. And oh, by the way, if you haven't already, don't forget to subscribe to the podcast and please leave a review. Five stars, of course. Let's begin the podcast. So here at CJOB today, we've been asking you uh, what book are you reading right now? What's your favorite type of book to read in uh, the summer? Uh, do you still like reading a book or do you read it on a Kindle or, or your iPad on a screen? And we found out uh, that the Booker, uh, sorry, the Golden Booker, the best of all the Booker Prize winners is The English Patient. And we're going to talk more about that later on, but it got us thinking about local Winnipeg, Manitoba authors. And we have one joining us here now, and it just so happens that her book launch happens tonight at McNally Robinson at 7 o'clock. Kate Hartfield, nice to see you. Hello, happy to be here. Thank you for coming in. And your novel, your first novel, is called Armed in Her Fashion. Hmm. So is it good summer reading? It is, I think so. It's uh, historical fantasy, and it takes place in 14th century Europe. Uh, and uh, it's lots of fun. It's a bit dark, but uh, it's got a lot of action yep. and uh, some interesting characters. Historical fantasy. I don't mm-hmm. think I've heard that before. Is that an actual genre, or you came up with that? Yeah, no, it's a thing. It's mm. a subgenre. Um, so it's uh, history in our own world, but with magical creatures in it. Excellent. Mm-hmm. Very cool. And so uh, how did you get into this? I mean, I guess we've all got these things bouncing around in our head, and mm-hmm. at some point you put pen to paper and... Right, yeah. I'm one of those people who's been writing since I was a kid, you know, and, and so I was uh, working away on um, novels that will never see the light of day and are going to live in my drawer for the rest of my life, <laughs> but they were good good apprenticeship, you yeah. know, for years and years. Um, and uh, and then I wrote one that um, was good enough to be published, and I got an agent and a Canadian publisher, Cheesing Publications, uh, put it out. And I have uh, never been happier. It's a lifelong dream come true. You know, it seems to me there are a lot of, or maybe there just uh, are some good ones here, but it seems to me like there are a lot of fantasy writers in Winnipeg and in Manitoba, eh? Yeah, oh, definitely, definitely. In fact, um, my editor on this book, um, SM Biko, um, is a writer in her own right and has a fantasy series out, a young adult fantasy series, and she's going to be introducing me tonight. Hmm. Um, I think also Chadwick Ginther might stop by. He's got a brand new book out with my same publisher, Cheesing Publications. His book is called Graveyard Mind, and I'm so looking forward to reading it. He's got a fabulous imagination. It's set in Winnipeg as well. Yeah, and so there's obviously some escapism there, and that's really why we read, right? To go Mm -hmm. somewhere else, right? Yeah, it's kind of a paradox because I think there's escapism, but at the same time, it kind of helps you understand our own world and our own lives as well. So you're kind of getting away from our world, but you come back to it with maybe a fresh perspective. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And one of the things that's been talked about on CJOB today, Jeff Courier before me was talking about this, you know, do you like opening up a book still or do you read on the screen? So many people are doing books that never get printed. They Mm -hmm. just end up as a a book on the internet that you can buy or, or, you know, just view for free. Are you uh, a traditionalist in that sense Mm -hmm. or are you more, yeah, here's, here's, Here's my book on screen. Mm-hmm. I do both. I like my Kindle. 
uh, especially when I'm traveling because, you know, I can take a bunch of books with me and I don't have to carry them all around. Yeah. Um, but I do have um, a fondness for paper books and mm-hmm. especially when I'm doing research or uh, just anything that a book that's really special to me, I want to have it on paper. Yeah. Any mm-hmm. thoughts on The English Patient, which, of course, most people, I think, know it as the movie, but a lot mm-hmm. know it as the book as well. Mm-hmm. And it's the Golden Booker winner now, right? The best of all the Booker winners. Canadian book, Mm -hmm. right? And you're a Canadian author. I mean, that has to be kind of cool. It's very cool. I think uh, Canadian fiction really punches above its weight in the world uh, in all kinds of genres. Um, And Dachi obviously is a a fabulous wordsmith. His sentences are are amazing. And, uh, you know, it didn't really come as a surprise that the English patient got this award. Mm -hmm. I mean, you know, nobody knew what it was going to be. But, um, you know, it's certainly not shocking that it won. Um, But we have such a wealth of talent in this country in in sort of mainstream literary fiction, but also, um, you know, in the fantasy, science fiction and, you know, mystery writers like Louise Penny. We've got... All yeah. kinds of stuff. Yeah. Mm-hmm. He answered me a question. You're from Winnipeg, but mm-hmm. you're in Ottawa now. You were a writer with The Citizen out mm-hmm. there. So you, you uh, uh, intern, uh, Nobby the intern here, wants to be a writer, a journalist. Mm-hmm. How do you make that jump from writing those daily news stories mm-hmm. to a novel? Because it's so different, right? I mean, right. I went from writing for radio to now writing for print a bit. Mm-hmm. And man, that's tough. Like mm-hmm. I'm working hard to try and get better at it. How do you make that leap from writing, you know, a, a news story to telling a story of your own? Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot of the same skills come into play. Um, I think the fact that I've been a working journalist for so many years really helps me push past that writer's block that a lot of people get. So mm-hmm. um, yeah, you have you no know, choice. Yeah, you write. exactly. When you got yeah. a four o'clock deadline, there's no such thing as writer's block, right? Mm-hmm. So I'm pretty good at just putting down the words on paper. And, uh, you know, I think a lot of the same concerns come into it. You know, I'm still interested in what's happening in the world and uh, in politics and in social change and everything else, but it just gets filtered in a slightly different way in fiction. Um, so it doesn't feel completely different, although obviously the skill set is a little bit uh, unique. Yeah. Well, and there are great stories in the news every day that oh, go yeah. on to be great books or give you an idea, right? I mm-hmm. mean, how did this one start for you? This one, is, it was mostly inspired by a painting. There's a painting by uh, Peter Bruegel called Dull Greet, and it's about this woman who goes on a raid at the mouth of hell, and she's armed only with pots and pans. And I thought... You know, and this was sort of a, a figure from folklore, uh, Flemish folklore. But I was just so taken with this idea that I thought, okay, well, what is this woman's story? Um, and, uh, you know, I think people nowadays are familiar with the hellmouth concept from Buffy the Vampire Slayer, mm-hmm. you know. Yeah. But back in the Middle Ages, it was um, it was a big concept in, in the religion and also in the folklore of the time. Um, so I thought, okay, well, what's this woman's story? And so I started to write about a woman that had to lead this raid only, armed with only pots and pans and, and what was her background. Hmm. Um, so it's a bit weird, as you can tell from my yeah. description. It's a little bit, yeah. uh, I don't think uh, all of the reviews have said, you know, there isn't really another book quite like it out there, but that's probably true of every book. So you yeah. mentioned the reviews. You mm-hmm. read the reviews, eh? I do. I I was going to be good and not read them when I when I first started. So you think it's better not to read them? <laughs> probably, yeah. 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 Um, but yeah, I couldn't really help myself. And uh, I've been... I've been actually really enjoying it, even the ones that aren't that great. Um, I've been lucky in that a lot of the reviews have been positive, but even the ones from the readers who say this book isn't for me, 
Um, there's something about that that's really valuable too, because you know not every book is for every reader. Mm-hmm. Um, so knowing who it's for and who it isn't, and um, you know maybe you learn something from that, or maybe yeah. you just learn okay, this is the kind of writer that I am, and that's not for everybody. Yeah, and uh, what is a hit in Canada? What's mm-hmm. a oh, what's a best-selling book? Five thousand copies, I think, something like that. Oh, I think so. Yeah, last I heard, it was like four yeah. or five thousand could be best-selling. Yeah, you don't write, or you didn't publish this book for that. Mm-hmm. I understand that. Yeah, but uh, what is your hope that it does become a bestseller? That mm-hmm. it leads to other books? Maybe it becomes a series, or or your first novel yeah. must be nervous but exciting. And yeah. and where does it go from here? Do you hope? Yeah, it's um, it's great. I think at this point in my career, I'm really hoping to kind of just build and, and gain fans and gain readers, and I've been doing that. And every every individual reader that's come to me and, and emailed me or something about it has been a real, uh, just such a joy to to reach out to people that way. Um, so that's been the best. And I think my you know my publisher's happy with how it's doing, and and that's been really good. Um, I do have another book coming out with the same publisher next year. And I've got a series of novellas, which are short novels uh, coming from an American publisher in the fall. Wow. They're time travel novellas. You're busy. Yeah, I have been busy. <laughs> so so it's good in that sense is that it kind of takes the pressure off that I, I've already written the stuff that's coming next. Yeah. Um, so I know what's coming down the pipe and uh, and I'm already working on stuff that'll probably be another few years out. Yeah. Well, and it would seem to me that uh, this genre or this sub-genre, as mm. you called it, I mean, listen, somebody coming along saying we want to make a movie out of that is mm-hmm. not out of the realm of possibility here, right? Yeah. Like you are in a very hot area when it comes to writing. Yeah, definitely, definitely. I know a lot of uh, my fellow science fiction and fantasy writers um, do get approached by Hollywood and, and you know, Hollywood North, uh, as the case may be. Yeah. Um, hasn't happened for me yet, but um, yeah, I think uh, it's really having someone else interpret your words like that, I think would be great. It's got to be a little bit nerve wracking, but it'd be lots of fun too. Yeah. Any advice for somebody listening out there that has these stories in their head and they go, mm-hmm. ah, you know, any advice? Because I'm sure for you, at some point you made that decision and mm-hmm. now you look back and go, man, am I glad I did that, right? Yeah. Put pen to paper. Yeah, the biggest thing for me was that I just kept going because, uh, you know, I had years and years of getting nowhere, you know, and uh, just rejection after rejection. And, um, you know, you don't have to keep going if it's making you miserable. Nobody says, (laughs) yeah, you know, I mean, it's okay to stop, too. But if if it's something that you want to do, you know, just be aware that everybody gets rejected and just Mm -hmm. keep at it. And there are so many paths to publication now. You can go the traditional route, self-publish. Well, self-publish, yeah. I mean, so many people are doing that. No publisher liked it. Oh, well, I'm going to do it myself. Exactly, exactly, yeah. So I I think, you know, just keep hope and uh, and keep getting better. Um, And it'll it'll happen eventually. It took me a while. Yeah. Yeah. Kate Partfield, her book is called, her novel is called Armed in Her Fashion. And now, joining us on the phone to react to Greyhound Canada shutting down in Western Canada. Certainly, this will affect his uh, uh, his community. Dennis Fenske, the mayor of Thompson, joins us on the phone now. Good afternoon, sir. Hi there. How are you? Great. Thank you for doing this. Your initial reaction to this news? Well, uh, shocked, but not surprised. Uh, again, we're seeing transportation in the north being driven by the bottom line. Uh, we, we've followed the news with Omnitracks, with the trains. And now Greyhound with bus services. So, again, northern communities impacted by the bottom line and the ability to travel uh, throughout Manitoba. 
Yeah, and, and I would imagine, you know, we're still digesting this here at CJOB, but I would imagine, you know, this is going to impact uh, smaller communities across the province, across Western Canada, but northern communities even more, I would imagine, eh? Oh, absolutely. I mean, you've got the uh, the rail services already compromised, uh, although the, the bus lines aren't servicing anything north of Gillam. Uh, but uh, uh, with the bus lines across the north, uh, you're talking uh, Swan, Flint Lawn, the Paw, Thompson, Snow Lake, uh, Nelson House, uh, Norway House, Cross Lake, things like communities like that, uh, where they are impacted. And uh, it's, uh, it's one of the modes of transportation. Not everyone has the luxury of owning an o- their own vehicle or having access to a vehicle. So uh, public transit is uh, is used. And, and again, from a bottom line perspective, obviously not a lot, not enough. This has been done in the past, and they've changed uh, routes and adjusted schedules accordingly, but to outright pull out, again, a big blow to northern Manitoba. And I imagine flights would be an option, maybe not a great option, but would be an option, but then at a much higher cost, right? Well, absolutely. I mean... Flight is the the most expensive mode of transportation in the north, and in some communities it's not it, it isn't an option uh, unless you're chartering a plane. Uh, so I mean, road access isn't available to everyone, so that's not affected by the the bus shutdown. But certainly, travel in general in the north is precarious at best. You look, you're at the mercy of the suppliers of the service. You're at the mercy of weather, uh, seasonal weather. So uh, it's a tough road, uh, no pun intended. When you're uh, when you're trying to to uh, access other modes of transportation other than personal. Yeah, you said you're not surprised. I'm curious to know that if uh, have you talked about this uh, possibility with other communities, with the province, with the feds? Is this something that's been discussed? And and what uh, at that point were you looking at as as possible options? It seems like you sort of expected this one day maybe to happen. Now what? Have you prepared it all? Well, I think uh, at the end of the day, this discussion has been going on the last couple of years. Uh, I know the routes have been changed, schedules have been changed, uh, things have been uh, shortened, there's less runs to uh, communities uh, more often. Uh, we talked about this uh, at least two or three years ago with the province in regards to subsidization, and of course that uh, landed on deaf ears from that perspective. Uh, and so, uh, like I said, it's not, not surprising, it's disappointing, but again, uh, we'll see what what the options are. A lot of people won't have options, and and again, uh, it'll be an impact on on northern communities. Not only for personal transportation, but uh, uh, healthcare is used to, to transport patients uh, to and from communities. Uh, goods and services will be affected. So it's a big impact uh, in northern Manitoba when you look at our geography and what our connectivity is. Yeah, uh, Mr. Mayor, anything else you wanted to say before I let you go? Uh, just, uh, I mean, from a northern perspective, I, I would appreciate listeners to to, uh, uh, I guess, understand the vastness of the north, and it's, it's not like we're right off the Trans-Canada. Uh, there, there's two, truly a geographic uh, uh, challenge to living in the north. Uh, it's a, a choice we make, but in the same sense, we're all Manitobans, and we deserve the same uh, uh, delivery of services throughout Manitoba. You know, I'm really glad you said that. We had this debate, or I did with some listeners the other day, when we were talking about um, Churchill and, and what to do there. And you're right. I, I don't think some people realize, as you said, the vastness of northern Manitoba and uh, just the requirements that you have, the basic needs that you have, that other communities do have other options or they have ways around it, but you guys don't. 
No, and that's, I mean, I just use the example of uh, when, when the south experiences floods to communities. In many cases, there's other options to get into that community. You can go, you know, three different highways to get in if one, if 59 goes out or something like that. But in our case, uh, when Highway 6 goes down, uh, that cuts off a lifeline. If 391 or 280 goes, goes down, that cuts off the lifeline. So when you would add that to the actual mode of transportation, cutting that down, it's even a bigger impact. So, yeah, it's a, it's a true uh, impact on northern Manitoba, and I, and I hope that listeners across Manitoba can understand what we're going through. And before I let you go, so as the mayor of Thompson now, you hang up the phone with me, and what do you do? Get on the horn to Broadway, or, or what's your uh, next move, Mr. Mayor? No, actually, I called my CAO because we have a contract for delivery services with uh, Greyhound for our local transit, and I, I need to know if that's impacted, if or if it's just highway traffic, or if they're cutting all their contracts with uh, bus services as well. Because they provide, we we buy the buses, but they provide the drivers and the mechanical service for our. Uh, two buses that we have in Thompson, so I need to find that out as well. Ah, interesting. So that's a that's a bit of a twist here. So tell me about that. You buy the buses, and yeah. they they provide the drivers. Uh, yeah. So I mean, it's a it's a for profit contract, obviously by Greyhound. So I, we would need to know uh, this Western Canada shutdown. Does that include the? public transit contracts that they would have with other communities, or is this just highway traffic? Uh, So we'll have to clarify that. And will you let us know, please? Absolutely. All right. Thank you, Mr. Mayor. Appreciate it. Thanks for reaching out. Take care. That is the Mayor of Thompson, Dennis Fenske, reacting to Greyhound Canada, pulling the plug on Western Canada. End of October. Greyhound Canada says it will end its passenger bus and freight services in Alberta, Saskatchewan, Manitoba, and B.C., essentially. There will be one route in B.C. It's a U.S. run between uh, U.S. service run, uh, U.S. run service, rather, between Vancouver and Seattle. But essentially, it's Manitoba, Saskatchewan, Alberta, and B.C., and it all comes to an end at the end of October. A couple of deadly crashes on the weekend. Let me play this report from Diana Foxhall, and then we're going to talk about it. Take a listen. Verdon RCMP responded to a single car collision around 2 o'clock Saturday afternoon on Highway 83, about 10 kilometres south of the community. The vehicle had driven off the highway into the ditch and rolled, ejecting and killing the 42-year-old man driving who wasn't wearing a seatbelt. The car's passenger, a 31-year-old man, had been wearing his seatbelt and was uninjured. Alcohol and speed are both believed to be factors in the crash. The second incident happened early yesterday morning in the RM of St. Francis Xavier. A car on Highway 26 heading north veered onto the east shoulder, then crossed over and struck the west ditch before rolling several times. The 28-year-old man driving was thrown from the vehicle and pronounced dead at hospital. He was not wearing his seatbelt. RCMP say speed may have played a role in the crash, but alcohol is not believed to be a factor. So as you heard Diana explain there, two deadly crashes on the weekend. In both cases, the people who died were not wearing their seatbelts. And I know for me, this is kind of like drunk driving. It blows me away that there are people still drinking and driving. Same with this. Um... Why are people not wearing their seatbelts? And I understand some people don't believe that seatbelts can save your life. Um, But, boy, I think the evidence is there, isn't it? Damian Turner joins us now. He is a retired Winnipeg Police Service collision reconstruction specialist. Damian, thanks a lot for doing this. 
Hi, Al. How are you? Great. So I'm sure you've seen some incredible crashes in the years that you were uh, sort of reconstructing uh, these collisions. M- maybe talk a little bit about uh, about that. Have you seen a lot of cases where seatbelts weren't worn and these people either died or were very badly hurt, while others in the same car maybe went uninjured, which we saw on the weekend? Yeah, I mean, it's it's unfortunate, obviously, and, and over my career, I spent a lot of time investigating uh, collisions, um, most or all of which were extremely serious. The, you know, the instance of people not wearing their seatbelts, it's definitely gone down over the years, but I, I've certainly seen the results of people not wearing their seatbelts, even, even in the city, you know, where we don't experience the same sort of speeds necessarily as you would see in the rural areas, uh, seatbelts are still... Um, quite capable of saving your life or somebody else's life for that matter. Yeah. And is that uh, the big uh, part of this is that the seatbelt keeps you from being thrown from the car? Is that the the main way that it saves your life? Well, yeah. I mean, the seatbelt and cars in general have been designed over the years with occupant safety in mind. And uh, seatbelts are sort of the the primary uh, means of accomplishing that. Um, so yeah, if you're traveling on a highway, for example, and you're traveling at hundred kilometers an hour or, or faster, when you lose control of that vehicle and, you know, we see reports of them starting to flip as that vehicle turns and rotates, um, the speed and uh, of the occupant inside the vehicle is, is incredibly fast. So there's no way a person can maintain control of themselves or the vehicle when they're rolling. Uh, and that's why we hear about them being ejected, whether it's out of the windshield or out of the side window. Um, and the damage is catastrophic. And seatbelts also, you know, they can save other people's lives. If, if you're not able to maintain control of your vehicle, um, even within the city, you know, a, a simple collision or hitting a pothole or a curb or, you know, swerving to avoid something, if, if you shift in your position as a driver and you don't maintain control, you can now hurt or kill somebody else. And it's sort of our responsibility as drivers to, you know, be responsible for other people on the road as well. Right. And, you know, when these vehicles are traveling at 100 or 110 kilometers an hour and then, you know, a vehicle flips or rolls, I mean, give me an idea of what sort of force people are throwing around in that car when they're not in their seatbelt or even thrown out of the car. Because if the car's traveling at 100 and it rolls or flips, I would imagine the people are being tossed around or ejected from the vehicle at an even higher speed than that. Well, yeah, certainly. And if you can imagine, you know, your vehicle sort of turning into a wheel, if you can look at the center of the wheel and then the the exterior of the wheel, the exterior is traveling a lot faster than the center of the wheel. So when you're not wearing your seatbelt and you become dislodged from the driver's position, you are now sort of on the exterior of that wheel being spun around um, at a huge velocity. And you're thrown through very small spaces unfortunately it's it's catastrophic what can happen to a person that's that's you know in that position there's no way you can stay in the vehicle and we saw that you know the the report from Verdon i believe it was this weekend where the one occupant the passenger wasn't injured at all right. after the vehicle rolled and the person who wasn't wearing their seatbelt died as a result yeah so you know the seatbelts are designed to hold you in your position But they're also part of a a larger sort of safety restraint system. They're now designed to be part of the airbag system and all that stuff. And they're actually, there are parts of the seatbelt that fire 
um, a charge that actually retracts the seatbelt and holds you tightly in your position when when the you know the severity of the crash is getting up there. You know, in minor crashes, you may feel the seatbelt sort of hold you in place. But in severe crashes, they can actually, you know, wrench you back down into your seat and really hold you firmly into your seat. Yeah, because we've certainly seen seatbelts over the years get much better. You're right. The technology has improved and therefore, uh, you know, the job the seatbelt does uh, has has gotten better for sure. Sure. And and obviously that requires you to wear the seatbelt the way it was designed. And, and that's another problem that we, you know, frequently see is that people don't like having a seatbelt over their shoulder so they'll wear it under their armpit or they'll you know they'll uh, adjust it so that it's extremely loose you know they'll try to wedge something into the mechanism so that it there's no restriction on their body but you're you're basically defeating the purpose of the seatbelt you've now you're going to either be killed by the airbag when it fires and hits you in the face or you're going to be thrown through that seatbelt anyway if your vehicle starts to tumble as you know, we saw on the weekend. Yeah. And, you know, sometimes I think, uh, Damien, you know, when we go into a long weekend, as we just did a week or so ago, uh, you know, I was on the show a couple of times saying, come on, you know, be safe, don't drink and drive. You feel like, you know, as somebody who's on the radio, you feel like you're kind of saying something that's a no-brainer, but yet I guess that's the way we we try and convince people uh, to not drink and drive, and as we're discussing today, wearing a seatbelt. We just need to keep yeah. pounding it out, I, I guess. I don't know. What do you think? No, it's true. I mean, there, there are many issues as to why people in their own minds don't wear their seatbelts. Uh, from complacency, you know, given you, and when you're talking about uh, statistics and, and that kind of stuff, you're, you have to look at the demographic and, and what group of people are you talking about. Older people may, you know, harken back to the days of the old-fashioned seatbelts that weren't very comfortable and really, you know, may not have done a great job, so they didn't think it was very beneficial. You know, younger people today sort of grow up instantly buckling their seatbelt the moment they sit in a, in a car, so it's a little bit different. Um, they have a different mindset towards wearing seatbelts. Um, complacency, people that are in the rural areas, you know, I'm just driving from here to there. It's a farm road. No, there's no traffic. You know, there's really no, I don't have to worry about somebody hitting me. So I don't need a seatbelt. That's the sort of thought process they may go through, not thinking that they're going to lose control of their vehicle and, and roll in a ditch um, because that doesn't really cross their mind. So, um, and also the impairment issue, you, you touched on it. Um, seatbelt use is, is frequently tied to impairment. So when we see somebody that isn't wearing a seatbelt, as a police officer, you may start to think, well, is the reason they're not wearing the seatbelt because they're impaired and they forgot to put it on? Hmm. Um, risk-taking behavior, they don't feel it's necessary anymore. So officers will often look at you know, failing to wear a seatbelt as part of a greater investigation into whether that person may be impaired or not. Interesting. Hey, before I let you go, uh, doing what you did with the Winnipeg Police Service, I'm sure there must be one or two crashes that you just can't get out of your mind, eh? Uh, probably a few more than one or two. Uh, there have been some horrific, horrific crashes in the city. Um, some, you know, that I've witnessed personally uh, take place and others that I've come to the scene of uh, after the fact. But yeah, there have been some horrific ones and you like to try to forget them, but they, they don't ever really go away, you know. Yeah. And answer me a question. How many years did you do it, Damien? Uh, how many years were you a reconstruction specialist with WPS? Uh, well, going back probably to the mid-1990s, I think, is when I 
Uh, I first became certified as a, a collision analyst and then subsequently a collision reconstructionist. And I did that mm-hmm. for a number of years uh, before becoming sort of a supervisor of one of the investigative units. Right. Um, and I did that for about the last 10 years of my career. I would probably say 20 years out of my 30 years I was involved in, in collision investigation. Did you ever see a case where you thought, man, that person shouldn't have had their seatbelt on? Um, you know, that's, it's hard to say. I, I don't recall ever seeing one personally. I mean, I know there have been instances where they have sure. sort of blamed the, the seatbelt on the particular injuries, but often the, the crash was so catastrophic that it wouldn't have mattered, quite frankly, regardless. I, yeah. I, I don't think I could ever speak to a, an instance where the seatbelt was the actual cause of death. I'm not saying that that's never happened, mm. but those would be such rare, you know, right. in the grand scheme of things, they'd be such a rare occurrence, but mm. really it's hard to justify saying, well, that's the reason I'm yeah. not going to wear it. Yeah. That one time out of a million or a hundred thousand or, or whatever. Right. Yeah. Right. And if somebody's you know foolish enough to fall back on that sort of thinking, then, you know, <laughs> I'd hate to say, but there's really no hope for them. Right. Yeah. yeah. Hey, Damien, thanks for the conversation. I really appreciate it. Anytime. I'll have to help. Damian Turner, he is a retired Winnipeg Police Service collision reconstruction specialist. We were talking with him about seatbelt use. Two deadly crashes on the weekend, both people dying, not wearing their seatbelt.